The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey guys, would you grab your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5? Like I said before, if you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up nice and high, and while the lights are even coming on, wave it around a little bit, and uh, we'll make sure that you get one. We do believe it is important that you be able to follow along in the scriptures and read along with us. The, the ultimate goal, really, of a lot of the teaching that we do is that you be able to read the Bible for yourselves anyway. And so uh, we, we really want you to be able to do that. If, uh, if you don't have one with you, like I said, raise it up. If you don't own a Bible, that is yours. It is a gift. Take it with you. And again, uh, leather Bible's available in the hallway at the Lost and Found table. And you guys keep laughing, but I could not be more serious. Like, go... Get yourself a free Bible. Take it, if you have a Bible, you might trade up. You know what I mean? Just go with you, see what's there. Maybe you can trade up. Might be something good. Might be something good. Galatians 5, and we're going to be starting in verse 16. We're almost done with this book. Um, we started it pretty early on in January. We've only got probably two teachings left. Depends on how slow I decide to be. Chapter six is good, man. There's some good stuff in there. But so is this one. Galatians five, verse 16 is where we're gonna start. Um, This passage is a continuation of where we left off last week at the first part of Galatians chapter five. And one of the things we talked about last week is that the benefit of us having spent this season studying the book of Galatians, working through it um, the way we have, spending these last few months in it, is that it removes gospel fog. Um, It's amazing how many people can live in church, grow up in church, hear the gospel over and over and over and still struggle with being able to articulate the gospel and be able to define the gospel or end up putting too many things into the gospel that aren't really part of God's gospel message. Um, But even more than just that, uh, a study through the book of Galatians gives us the ability to recognize things in our life that are out of step with the gospel. Areas in our own life where we're not walking in line, we might say, following behind Jesus Christ, but allowing other influences to come in and pull us away from what we are truly called to, this gospel of Jesus Christ. And so spending time in Galatians has nailed this for us. And last week, we really looked at verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1. Is Really, you could say the theme of the entire book, frankly. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And we talked about the fact we have not just been set free from. We have definitely been set free from. No doubt about it. We would all agree with that. Some of the things we've been set free from. We've been set free from the weight of being our own God. And I said last week, you won't meet too many people that will say that. Um, Hi, my name's Jeff. I'm God. Like you won't meet too many, you you might in certain institutions maybe, but you won't meet too many people out on the street that will identify themselves as God. You will meet tons of people who functionally live that way, who put themselves up on a pedestal and the world is expected to revolve around them, who, who live for their own needs, for their own desires, who expect others to serve them, who believe that everything that they want, need, desire should come first over everything else that literally they worship themselves. 
and they become their own sovereigns and their own rule makers, and they decide what needs to be done, what is good, what is not. You'll meet tons of people that way, and look, as much as I love you, and I love you, every one of you in this room, you may be incredibly gifted in all sorts of things, but you are a crummy God. We make crummy gods. I mean, and the weight of trying to be that, I don't think people even realize sometimes until maybe it's too late. Just think suffering in general, just, just suffering alone. If you're your own God, what do you do when you get that call? When you hear that word cancer, and suddenly you're powerless to do anything about this thing that's coming at you. How do you make sense of that? And when you are the sovereign in your life, now it's up to you to determine why is this happening and what's the point of life and what's the meaning of this and the weight of that is almost unbearable. This week in particular, there have been so many different people in our church that have been really struggling with some significant health things. There was a baby born this week that ended up having to go to NICU because of breathing difficulties. And so on one morning this week, I was there at the hospital with them and praying with this baby and this scared mother and father as they're dealing with this and then literally left that room, got in the car, drove to the other side of town and walked into a room where a woman has just been put on hospice and even her living will forbids her to have nutrition or food or any of those things and so the family's just sitting there waiting. And so seeing both of those things happen with people that are dear parts of our congregation, here's the amazing thing. In both rooms... I heard the same thing. How do people go through this without God? I heard in both rooms people saying, I'm just glad God's in control because this is scary. What do you do when you don't have God? When you set yourself up as sovereign, then all the weight of that is on you and you are not designed to carry that. And you have been set free from that, from having to be God because there is a God. And then we have the ability to just rest under his sovereign rule and to know, I don't know what's going on, but I don't have to come up with the answers right now because God is good. And if he would go so far as to send his son to die on the cross for me, then I can trust that whatever it is that's going on right now, even if I don't understand it, is going to work out for my good because that's who God is. So we've been set free from that. We've also been set free from, and this is probably what we've pounded on the most in our study of Galatians, we've been set free from empty, fear-based, behavior modification religion. And, and really what we mean by that is, is this behavior that we have to live a certain way in order to get from God. We have to do certain things in order to get God's favor or not do certain things in order to make sure that we have God's approval and love and blessing and all of those sorts of things. That, that, that's really a way that we tend to swing to or, or even just feeling that because of our sin, God is angry with us. So now we need to do certain things to make up for it, to balance out some sort of proverbial scales that don't exist. And it's exhausting And it's enslaving because no matter what you do, you can never do enough. And no matter how good we are, there are still continual failures over and over and over. And so we've been set free from that. But we have been set free to. We have been saved to, for example, to rest in the providence of God when we're dealing with suffering. And that that doesn't mean that we get cheesy about suffering. That doesn't mean that Christians, when hard things happen, we just go, oh well, things are good. Like that's, if you know me at all, you know that drives me insane. Drives me insane. 
They're not good. Cancer's not good. It is a product of a fallen world that is a result of sin and rebellion against God that Christ died so that one day it would be removed. It's not good. So we can be honest about our suffering going through it, but we can rest in God that he is putting things back together, that he is healing. That family that's sitting around their loved one waiting for them to pass away right now is able right now to rest in the fact that though this shriveled, dying body has failed her, there is a new one waiting. And there is freedom in that. They don't have to feel fear and worry. And they've even talked about it. The, the, the daughter said just yesterday, she said, I don't know how people do this when they don't know God. I would be horrified if I was waiting on my mom to die, not knowing where she would end on the other end. That's enslaving. But there is freedom in trusting God. Freedom in in knowing that even when we can't explain suffering or difficulty, that that there is a God who is fixing it one way or the other. There's freedom in that, amen? There's also freedom from from this idea of believing that the bad things that happen to me in our suffering or whatever are a result of our sin because we know that all of our punishment has been poured out on Christ and the cross. And and that's that's one we're really used to. Something bad happens, we can easily drift into this mentality that this happened because I did or because I didn't. And we've been set free to the unconditional love of God. That says, I love you perfectly right now, and it's apart from your performance. In fact, my love for you, Jeff, is based on Christ's performance, not yours. And you cannot mess that up. Man, that's free. Amen? I mean, those of you that mess that up, amen? That you mess up over and over and over, the realization that God loves you no matter what, is that not the most freeing thing in the world? Megan, they should have amen louder. Don't go back to Grants Pass and tell them about this. Amen? That's good news, right? We have been set free to this, and then we've also been set free to a love-based transformation. The idea that as we understand God's heart for us and what he has done for us, it changes everything. It becomes the motivation for everything that we do. It's not a fear-based, I have to do this, I have to do this, but it's an understanding that how can I not but serve the one who has done so much for me? And in the same way that you would willingly serve a family member that you love dearly, so too, we are changed by the love of God in our lives. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Paul tells us then in verse, uh, verse one of chapter five, stand firm. You gotta stand firm in that because the tendency is that we will drift back to it no matter how many times we hear it that we'll drift back into legalism, even though we know that we're saved by grace, that we'll have those moments of fear, like, oh no, God's upset with me, or oh no, this is going wrong in my life, and I've gotta do something to make up for it. And Paul says, no, you stand firm in the gospel. There's no more punishment for you. Stand firm. Or you stand firm in the gospel when you fear that God's holding out on you, and you start looking at things in your life and thinking, God's not for me. If he was for me, he wouldn't have me in this position. He's withholding from me, so it's gonna be up to me to go seek joy in my life, and I have to go provide this, and you drift right back into this making yourself the sovereign again. You've been set free from these things, and we stand firm. We said last week, and we'll say it every week. We stand firm by never leaving the gospel. 
Christians never depart from the gospel. You don't learn the gospel, check that off like it's a 101 level course in Christianity, and now move on to the next thing. The gospel is not a prerequisite, it is everything. And so we learn, that one of the, the biggest benefits for us in learning the gospel the way we are in Galatians is that you will be freed to be able to preach this to yourself. Because I'm not gonna pop up in your house from time to time when you blow it and are feeling discouraged and say, okay, do me a favor, Winston, turn to Galatians chapter five, I'm gonna spend some time with you on this. No, you, the book of Jude talks about this. Preach the gospel to yourself, understand the reality. When that discouragement comes, you identify it and go, that's not from Christ. That conviction, that, or not conviction, that condemnation I feel, that fear that I feel, that's not from Jesus because the gospel promises me otherwise. And so you just start preaching yourself out of that kind of hole. So we stand firm in the gospel and we understand that the only thing that matters in the end is faith working through love. We spent time talking about our motives for service, our motives for following Jesus, and motives matter. The only thing, the only obedience to the law that matters in the end is that which is based on faith motivated by love because anything else is a self-serving, religious, legalistic-based worship. And so we are to respond in love to God. It doesn't mean we're not obedient. We are absolutely obedient. We're gonna deal with that big time today. But our motivations matter. And so how do we know what those are? Because I don't know if you're like me, but any of you guys question your motivations all the time for things? Find yourself, I, I feel like my motives are pure, but I don't know, I, I get pleasure out of this and I get attention when I do that. What if I'm chasing that? Oh, I'm a wreck, what do I do? I mean, I've felt that way from time to time and Paul gives us a certain diagnostic to that in verses 13 through 15 when he says, hey, our relationship with others is gonna help show you what's really going on in your life. So, if you look at others as competition, because when someone's doing well, if that's discouraging to you because you feel like, man, they're doing better than me, and I, I need to be ahead of them, like there's some sort of religious hierarchy, and, and you just, as long as, it's, it's not like a bear chasing you. You know the joke with the bear? I just don't have to be the slowest. So as long as I'm ahead of you, I'm good. You know that old joke? That's not Christianity. I gotta stay above the cut line like a golf tournament, and as long as I'm in there, I'm good. Oh no, he got a birdie, he's ahead of me, I'm in trouble. It, that's how people look at one another a lot of times in the church. And so when we see successes, or, or maybe we see someone worshiping with it, we feel like that's more passion than I worship with, or that person knows more scripture than I do, oh no. And what we're doing is we're ranking ourselves. That's what happens a lot of times. Or, even worse, when you find joy in the failures of others because it makes you feel a little more righteous, when someone blows it and you find yourself, well, I'm not that bad. I'm at least ahead of him in the rankings. And that's a revelation that you're dealing with some serious religion, legalistic mindset that God wants to free you from. But when people become something you can find joy in, that you can, you can celebrate the gospel and the work of God in someone else's life, no matter what you're doing in your life, because you're seeing it as a work of God, when you see others and you can love and serve them out of love because God loved you, not because you have to do this to earn favor or to look good from someone else, that's the diagnostic for us, man. So many people, I've met so many people through life, and all of you guys have too before at different times in your life, that they love Jesus, but then they're just jerks to everyone else. I don't think that's possible. The diagnostic God gives us 
we see our love working out in our relationships with one another. And you read the book of John, man, if you haven't been through there, or excuse me, 1 John, if you haven't been through 1 John in a while, man, and you're struggling in that area, you're gonna deal with all sorts of convictions where he says, look, it's impossible to say you love God and not love the brethren. That's impossible. It's a lie if you're saying this. And so Paul is saying our diagnostic for a lot of these things to help us check our motivations will show up in how we treat one another, particularly, again, he's writing to the church, so particular brothers and sisters here within the church. But we love because Christ first loved us. You gotta be, even be careful with that. You can find yourself, I'm gonna love the people in the church so that God's gonna love me. No, you've gone re- legalistic again. It's a constant tight wire that we walk, is it not? But it's good to learn the gospel. Now, Paul He's going to go into this comparison today, and he's going to frame it under the, 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 the wording of walking by the Spirit and walking by the flesh. So let's go, verse 16, he says, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So inside the life of every believer, important, every believer in Jesus, there is a war going on between two opposing forces. One of them is referred to as the spirit. One of them is referred to as the flesh. This is going on in the life of every believer. So from the moment that you are saved, Jesus comes into your life, you have been forgiven of your sins, you are a Christian. From that moment, you are set out on a journey in which 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that the Spirit of God is molding you into the image of Christ. He's making you more and more Christ-like. So that starts the moment that you get saved. Now it doesn't finish until the day that we are standing before Jesus. If you are breathing now, you are not there yet. Amen? And no matter how you're feeling today, that journey is not complete until the day we stand before Jesus Christ in glory, whether it's through our death or his return, that's when it actually happened. The scripture says when we see him, we'll be like him. But hopefully we're growing, and as we move along that path, we're being changed into more and more like the image of Christ. So if you are a believer and you're in that gap right there, which is every believer in this room, inside you there is a real literal war going on between the spirit and the flesh. The flesh is that part of you, that fallen, broken, human part of you that still wants to serve itself, that still wants to rebel against God, that still wants to self-worship and set itself up as sovereign and, and seek pleasures and fulfillment and whatever it is it desires, that's the flesh. And the spirit, we're not talking about some sort of ooh, spirit, like supernatural or, or um, I don't know, Ashland or whatever. I'm sorry, Ashland people. Not Ashland. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, that was horrible. Um, <laughs> help me here. Mystical kind of like ooh, spirit. No, we're talking about the spirit, capital S. Because when you have been saved, the spirit of God is put in you. And it's the Spirit of God that is doing the work that's transforming you into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 makes that clear. This is from the Spirit. And so inside you, there's this battle. The old man is being put to death by the Spirit of God slowly but surely. It's a painful process sometimes. It's a much longer and slower process than many of us would like it to be, amen? 
But it's a real war. No matter how long you've been walking with God or how spiritual you feel you are, there is a real and tangible war going on. And this will be the case until you die and in with Jesus in glory. And some days, that battle feels like a little skirmish. A little dust up here, a little dust up there, no big deal. We'll deal with it and things are okay. But some days, it's like wave after wave after wave after wave and it's exhausting. This is a real battle that goes on. And here's the thing, and we learn this from Galatians. Both sides, spirit and flesh, are promising the same thing. The spirit is over here saying, freedom, I have freedom for you. But the flesh is over here saying the same thing, freedom. I have freedom. Everything you want is here. Isn't it how we often define freedom in our own societies? The freedom means you can do whatever you want. And so both sides promise the exact same thing. The difference is one of them is real and one of them is an absolute mirage. Looks really good, no substance whatsoever. No substance whatsoever. So, so for example, the flesh promises freedom through legalism. If you, if you do this and you do this, then you're going to look really good in front of other people and you're going to earn favor with God and you're going to feel really good about yourself. And, and let's just be honest, it sounds right. It looks and feels spiritual and it looks right. Legalism is hard to push away because it looks like we should do it as Christians. But Paul makes it really clear that's not motivated by God. In, in fact, the demons themselves would love to busy you with so much religious activity that you have no time for relationship with God and would love to keep you in a place where you are in constant fear about whether God loves you or not. They would love to keep you in that spot. And then there's the mirage of the flesh that says you can just do whatever you want. Just do whatever you want. Here's this. You're going to find joy in this, and you're going to find joy in this, and just drink of this cup, and you're going to be whole. And so we go to well after well after well, whether it's everything from drugs to money to relationships to power, you name it, and we're constantly drinking up of these things, thinking that that's what's going to bring us joy. That's what's going to bring us happiness. And what do we find out over and over and over? It doesn't work. And this is what Jesus was talking about when he's with the woman at the well, and he says, you drink of me? The water I have for you, and you will never thirst again, ever. And so, so many people are drinking from everything from sin to just full-on religious activity that is not led by the Holy Spirit, and in the end, it's a cup of sand. And they're finding out that it's an absolute mirage. Verse 16 says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. In other words, you're not going to fall for this mirage if you're walking by the Spirit. Awesome. But that's really churchy sounding, Jeff. What does that mean, walk by the Spirit? Well, let's talk about this. He goes into verse 18. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, important to remember here, under the law does not mean obedient. Christians are absolutely expected to be obedient to God's word. Everybody say expected. You are expected to obey God's word. Anyone who adopts a child then expects that child is going to come into the household and adopt the rules and the systems and obey the word of their father, right? So as Christians, we are expected to obey God's law. Freedom from legalism does not mean that we don't obey God's law. That's not what it means. When he talks about being under the law, what he's talking about here is the belief that our actions create God's affection, 
That's what he means. So I have to do enough to keep God happy with me. I have to do this in order to make sure God loves me and this this mentality that he's in heaven looking down on us with a constant frown just waiting to squash us like a bug if we step out of line. That's living under the law. It's exhausting. Many of us have been there a lot in our history with Christianity. And Paul's saying, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You don't have to believe that your actions create God's affection. You're going to trust Christ for that. Christ has purchased your good standing with God. It has nothing to do with what your actions are. And this is why this is important. Let me explain this. The law and, and, and legalism and these things, these are external. The law is an external reality that exposes things that go on in the heart. But, but freedom in Christ deals with an inward heart issue. The spirit is a work of the heart that is a work of illumination. So, so for example, people like to look at actions and proclaim the actions as being ugly and the people as being good. That's what we like to do. So we're fine with admitting that we lie. We don't really like saying things like we are a liar. That just seems a little more extreme than what we actually deal with. We just lie here and there. They lie all the time. And so we tend to judge these things. And and this is what happens. In the end, what we do then is we feel like all we need to do is address that external behavior and everything's going to be fine. And it's just not true. It's like blowing your nose when you have a cold and just hoping that that's going to cure the infection. It's a symptom. It doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in the heart. What the Spirit does is get into the heart and change affections there, which results in a change of external actions after the fact. And this is the theme of all Scripture. I mean, whether you look at Jesus' teaching, he said, that which is without or outside of a man cannot defile the inside. The issue is in the heart. You look at a tree produces fruit. Out of a good tree produces good fruit. Out of a bad tree is bad fruit. He says it all starts with what's going on on the inside. Even go all the way back to Proverbs. And in Proverbs, it says, guard your heart for from it, excuse me, for from it are the springs of life. This, This legalistic mindset looks at rules and looks at external behavior and says, what we need to do is adjust this, but it never affects the actual heart that's going on. And that's what the Holy Spirit did. And so that's even what we talked about last week with regards to, to motives and things like the heart is the issue here. And a heart that understands the love of God and has been changed by the gospel will just naturally result in different life, different service, different fruit. But you can do all sorts of legalistic or religious activity on the outside that has nothing to do with going on inside your heart. And so Paul's going to differentiate some of these different things uh, between the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit. So look at verse 19, for example. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. They're evident. We can see this. We, we can understand, we can see, feel, experience what's going on here. And he starts out with one category. And really these you can break into groups. That's how we're going to do it instead of one by one as we go through. He starts out by saying the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. And we really don't need to spend much time on this one, right? I mean, our culture is insane right now with regards to this. I mean, Every culture to some degree or another has put sex up on a pedestal as that's the thing that's going to bring me joy. That's the thing that's going to bring me happiness. But our culture is out of its mind with this right now on a way that very few civilizations in the history of mankind have ever done. Because now we don't just look at sex as that is the thing that we have to achieve in order to find fulfillment or wholeness. Now we've tied sex into your identity, like who you are. 
mean, right now our Supreme Court is deciding a case and they're making sexual orientation now an actual civil rights issue, meaning you can't discriminate against someone based on who they are. It's, it's moved from what you do to who you are now. And very few civilizations in the history of mankind have ever gone down this sort of road, but every single one that has, has collapsed under the weight of this kind of decision. Every single one. And I'm telling you, church, it's coming for us. We've been talking about this for a while. I'm actually, I just, just finished winter term, no classes this summer in seminary, and probably gonna take the fall off because we have got work to do as a leadership here at the church because, I don't know, did you guys catch what was said sometimes this week during this case? The U.S. Solicitor General was in front of the Supreme Court testifying. He was asked specifically by the Supreme Court, do these changes regarding gay marriage, what will their effect be on the church? What will their effect be on tax-exempt organizations and religious and faith-based 501c3s? Uh, is that going to be an issue if we do this? And the guy started kind of getting nervous. And Well, um, yeah, um, um. And then he sort of paused, took a breath, and he said, it's going to be an issue. That was a shot across the bow. It's coming. It's going to change. And churches right now all over the country are having to adjust bylaws, legal standards, and even put membership forms together in order to protect itself from what would then otherwise be looked at as indiscriminate, oh, we'll do your wedding, but we're not going to do your wedding, and it's coming for us. And it's the natural result of taking something like sex that God has a specific design for and completely perverting it, and now it's attached identity to it, and our nation's just going crazy. This is a work of the flesh. Be praying for our country right now, please. I have great fear for what our nation will look like moving forward. Oh, it's just gay marriage. I mean, when you study the history of civilization, nations and people groups that go down this road, it doesn't end well. Pray for our nation. The next section might seem like one that's not quite so applicable to us. He says in verse 20, idolatry and sorcery. Uh, show of hands, those that are dealing with witchcraft, that's the thing that you're wrestling with. Probably not too many of you, nobody brought their Ouija board today or any of that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, we don't see as much of that, but you know what? You can go around shops in our very county and find all sorts of things that are being sold under that from crystals to you know, horoscopes, any of those sorts of things have their roots in witchcraft. It's, it's setting up as a god that which is not a god. It's going to something for wisdom, protection, and provision that is not god. That's really what the source of witchcraft and idolatry is. So it might be a little more applicable than we tend to think right off the bat. The next category, though, way more applicable. This next category, you could call it attitudes of the flesh. Look at these. Enmity, which means ill will, just having ill will towards someone. Strife, which is disagreements, and jealousy. These are attitudes of the flesh. They're attitudes of hostility. And in each one of those, we would all agree, right? You can feel it when you're moving into that, right? Like you can feel that happening. You might talk to somebody, especially if they've grown up in the church long ago, and you'll hear things like, oh, I was in the flesh. Like you can feel that happening inside you. And, and the result of that, we'll take a look at the next category as it moves forward. It says fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and then in the next verse, envy. So those go together. There's a progression there. 
When you find yourself feeling enmity, you're feeling strife, you're feeling jealousy, you feel ill will towards others, then the end result of that unchecked and apart from gospel change is going to be fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. This is how it's going to play out. Now, in your family, you see this stuff play out like this all the time. And I'm, I'm not talking full extended family, because look, we all have crazy in our family, right? We, we all do. Those, those concentric circles tend to not have to go too far till you get to the point where you're like, let's not invite that much family to the house. Let's move it back in just a notch because we all have crazy. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like close-knit family. Like we, we've seen this play out. Parents have seen kids that are, we would love to call good-natured, loving kids end up in seasons or even moments of jealousy that result in division and fight with their brothers and sisters or husbands and wives or whatever the case may be, right? We see that play out all the time. But Paul's writing to the church This letter is to the church that is being infiltrated with an outside thought that is not based on the gospel, and the end result of what has infiltrated the church is this kind of thing. And man, we have seen this kind of stuff play out in the church. Divisions and dissensions. You know, church splits are rarely theological issues. Rarely rarely. I mean, we see some. I mean, even the gay marriage debate right now is causing that in some denominations like the Presbyterians and such. But rarely, especially, denominational might be one thing, but like within one specific church, church splits are rarely theological issues. When you chase them back, more times than not, divisions occur because it's fruit of the works of the flesh. And it's a big spectrum, but that's just the reality of it. There was a church famously not that long ago in Dallas, Texas, that went through a massive church split that ended up even in the courts. They completely ignored Corinthians and its rules against lawsuits between churches and unbelievers and all, or between believers and all that stuff. Went to the courts to fight over property and buildings and all these things. Fortunately, the courts was like, this is a denominational issue. They kicked it back to that particular denomination. A church court was formed and they actually brought both sides in to investigate what's going on and try to make a division, or excuse me, a decision. And when they traced everything back, you know what the source of the division was? The, the, the ground zero, if you will, of what happened? An elder was served a smaller piece of ham than a child that ended up sitting next to him at a church dinner. That was ground zero. And next thing you know, this is broadcast through all the local news. It was everywhere to show what horrible division was taking place within the church. That's the, resu- that's the, the headquarters, if you will, for most church splits. Things like pride and envy. Or even people that just want things a certain way and are unbending to that. I mean, you you have a First Baptist Church that puts in new carpet that's a different color, and three months later you have Second Baptist Church just down the street. That kind of stuff, we laugh, but it has happened. This isn't theoretical, this is real. It could be direction changes. It could be sinful actions, power struggles, even abuses within the church. Some of the reasons might be justified, but the root is still an issue of the flesh on someone's end down the road. This happens all the time. Now, 
I am not in any way saying that within the church we should all just roll over and agree with one another on everything. Of course I'm not. In fact, the fact that we are sinners with a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different uh, histories and all those things guarantees that within these four walls right here are all sorts of different opinions, experiences, beliefs, convictions. There are tons of them within this room. And just because we're a church doesn't mean we just roll over on everything anytime something comes. But there is a God-glorifying way to go about those things, and I would even say a gospel-proclaiming way to have divisions with one another and yet maintain unity in a gospel-honoring, God-exalting way. And this is what's going on in the church here. There is envy and divisiveness, and and what started out as a grace-filled, gospel-filled gathering has now resulted in a legalistic mindset where people are trying to outdo the other person, there's competition within the church, and then there's pride, and the end result is fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. This is what's going on right here in the church. And he goes on in verse 21 to the next category drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So I'm going to do a little work here because we talked about alcohol in particular with regards to legalism a couple of weeks ago. Here, Paul comes in and says, works of the flesh are drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So drunkenness in particular. Like I said, a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned alcohol in particular. And I said, and I've, I've said this before, I don't believe you can even make a weak biblical argument, much less a solid biblical argument that says that the use, the, the responsible or moderate use of alcohol is a sin in the life of a believer. I don't believe you can do that at all. I understand there's verses you could take and you could say, this seems to say, but when you look at the, the thrust of the gospel, you, it's really hard to make that case. Um, I would say impossible. And so this is what we talked about. However, Everybody listening? Say yes if you're listening. However, in the life of some believers, maybe even many believers, God has done things like put convictions in your life that are from him. Maybe your past is characterized by a certain misuse of something, and so God puts a conviction in your life that says, not for you. Or in some people, you have things like addictions, family histories, weaknesses. Man, the book of Romans talks about the idea of liberty, and your weaknesses play into this. And for you to go, when you have a conviction set up like this, and to say, I'm going to go do this anyway, I don't care what it is, it is a sin. But for the average, just run-of-the-mill Christian, having a glass of wine with their dinner tonight is not a sinful thing. But all drunkenness is sin. Everybody say amen if you hear me on that. All drunkenness is sin. All of it. All of it makes it really clear in Scripture. Whether you want to use passages that say that a believer is to be ready in season and out of season, it's tough to be ready in season to go visit someone who's suddenly in an emergency if you can't drive. other passages that say, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, all drunkenness is something that is sinful, needs to be repented of, and you need to allow God to change that in your life. Please tell me you hear me, amen? Amen. However, in this passage, it's talking about something slightly differently. 
When it talks about drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, the fact that he adds to it things like these is a little bit weird. Like I said, this is grouped into categories, and these last three in the original language are grouped together. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these is all one category, if you will. And that seems like quite a spread. Drunkenness, orgies, and stuff like that. I don't even know what you would say stuff like that is, and what does that even mean? And, And here's what's going on here. This is missing in the English translations here, but, but what's going on is in that time, it was a Hellenistic, pagan-worshiping culture, and they were fear-based, meaning if you wanted your crops to grow, then you had better appease the God that's in charge of that. Or if you want that relationship to flourish, you want to get, have a baby, or you want to get married, or whatever it is, then you had to go to those different gods and worship and appease that God in hopes of getting from that God what you want. And in many of these cases, the, the type of worship that was done was just debauchery. You would go to these places, there was drunkenness that would take place that then led to, and that's what the original wording kind of says, this drunkenness that leads to orgies and things like this. And so there were places where horrible drunkenness led into, and it was part of the program. It wasn't like it just accidentally happened. It's not a party that got out of hand. It's drunkenness that led to orgies. And and the idea here is these people would go into these places of worship and give all of themselves in every possible way before these gods in hopes of getting from these gods that which they want. And so when Paul says drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, he's saying any of those things that you give all of yourself to and you're hoping that in that you're gonna receive something back from God somehow, this is what he's talking about. So let's just shoot straight. Are there other things that can go into that category? Can someone give themselves to food? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we call it comfort food, don't we? That we can go to food and to eating in such a way that it relieves stress and brings joy and relief from the difficulties, even sinful issues of the world, when that's what Jesus does for us? What other things? Exercise? If I just looked like that, then I'll feel good about myself. It ties in identity. What about shopping? Sorry, ladies, but I'm going to get to the guys. Shopping? What do they call that? Retail what? Therapy, right? Um, Stepping on toes everywhere this morning, yes. Um, Hobbies, when you can say, I will find my fulfillment in my hobby, and and then you let everything else, it it can become a God to you. I'll let church, I'll let family, I'll let job, I'll give all of my money to this hobby, I'll play golf every single day, whatever the case might be. I mean, that can become a functional God for you that you are taking all these elements of your life and laying them down before. How about relationships? Absolutely. Sports, guys. The women were way more admitting than you guys were. Shame on you men. Humble yourselves and admit your sin. Look, this is a massive category, right? But that's the work of the flesh. The work of the flesh is seeking from things that which God is only designed to do. And then he gives us the work of the Spirit, and we gotta hurry. The work of the Spirit, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. It's a great list. And I'll tell you guys, when, when I started the book of Galatians, in my mind I thought when we get to the fruit of the Spirit, we'll probably just spend a week on each one of those. But I've, I've decided not to. You know why? Um, when you start verse 22, but the fruit, any English majors out there? Is that plural or singular? You guys, um, you can say it. Come on, don't be scared. Singular. It's been a while for English class for some of us, right? Good job, though. I'm proud of you for trying. The fruit of the Spirit is singular. And here's why that's important to know. If we're not careful, we can even take a good list like this and break it up into a bunch of individual categories and spin it right back into religion. And we can go, well, I'm doing good with love, and I'm doing good over here with gentleness, but I'm not doing really good with patience over here. But two out of three ain't bad, and so I can feel really good about myself. And, and, and really, that's silly. If you look at this list and really see what it's going, none of them stand on their own. They're all linked together. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is like an abusive man who says, I love my wife. My anger just gets out of control once in a while, and I end up beating her. That's baloney. You hate your wife if you're doing something like that to her. You can't love your wife and then struggle with self-control and anger and gentleness towards her at the same time. If you're growing in love with your wife, you're going to grow in patience for your wife. You're going to grow in gentleness for your wife. You're going to grow in self-control regarding your wife. And this is the same thing here. This is a collective. What he's saying is when the Holy Spirit works in your life, this is what you are turned into. You become loving and gracious. And, and think about this. Remember, he's writing to the church and he's laying out a comparison here. Hey, Galatian church, I have an offer for you. These guys are offering division, dissension, anger, backbiting, jealousy, and what the gospel of Jesus Christ offers you is joy, peace, love, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. So wouldn't we be a fool? Who would say, I'll take division, please. Dissension, anger, no one would say such a thing. And so Paul's trying to point out, when you are walking by the Spirit of God, this is the evidence of the Spirit in your life. If you're walking out of step with the gospel, it's going to look like this. And you're going to become legalistic and judgmental and angry and divisive, and the end result will be these very things right here. So which category do we find ourselves in? You could use this for some personal diagnostic. If you were to take that as two lump sum categories, what are the areas in your own life that are growing? You know, the old analogy that there's two dogs, the one that's fed is the one that gets biggest. So in your life, is there evidence in your life that you are growing in peace, love, joy, patience, gentleness? I'm not saying you're nailing it. We just guaranteed, the gospel guarantees you will not have this down until heaven. But right now, where are you? What is the dog, if you will, that's growing? But if you say, you know what, in my life, I'm feeling lots of strife and envy and jealousies and bitterness and those sorts of things. I feel that more than I feel peace, love. Then it might be time to let the Spirit put the works of the flesh to death, to crucify the flesh. Look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you feel the fresh, the, fl the fresh, the flesh growing in your life, the Bible says you kill it, crucify it. Paul says in Romans 13, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We must crucify the flesh. You go, so how do we do that? Well, this, is, this is what you do. 
When there are areas in your life that through conviction and through the grace of God, you become aware of that are struggles in your life, then you build safety mechanisms, you build walls, you build protections around it that prevent that, so to speak, struggle from growing in your life, but all the while keeping your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And you gotta hear this, okay? Because if, I, if you're struggling with lust, then you put protective measures in place that keep that from growing. So you put filters on your computer. You get accountability with guys. You understand what the scriptures say and you walk in that. And you could say, wait, that sounds like legalism, Jeff. If I'm a truly mature Christian, then I'm walking in freedom and I don't need a filter on my computer. No. Having filters that keep porn out of your computer if you're struggling with lust is not legalism. It's wisdom. It's just plain wisdom. Understanding that you have addiction means you should never even walk into a bar. That's wisdom. That's not legalism. It doesn't make you more spiritual because you live your life without boundaries. It makes you foolish to live your life without boundaries. Because we are guaranteed to fall. We can't possibly do this. But here's the thing. Our faith is not on the boundaries. Like, Filters on your computer alone will not change. That is external behavior. Safe eyes might keep porn from coming through your computer. It will not stop you from looking at a woman walking down the street and still having lust in your heart because that's where it resides. But Jesus is what? The author and finisher of our faith. So we put boundaries in place. We do whatever we can to starve the flesh so that that dog can't grow in our lives. But our faith is not in that. Our faith is in Jesus. That's the issue. It deals with the heart issues. And the goal is, the, 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 the work of the Spirit is, is that as we keep our eyes on Jesus and we're starving the flesh, that more and more and more Jesus is the one that becomes more infinitely beautiful than those things that would seek to derail us. When that happens, you won't need filters. But you'd be foolish to go down that road knowing the weakness of our flesh. flesh. Amen? Foolishness to do that. And these external behaviors don't deal with the heart. And Paul goes on, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So we've been told that we walk by the Spirit, that we're led by the Spirit, and that we live by the Spirit. So what does that mean? In a lot of places in our culture right now, even with the Supreme Court case that's going on right now, we are told your faith is awesome. You can believe whatever you want. You want to believe Jesus died for your sins? Do it. You want to believe Bigfoot is God? Do it. Whatever you want to believe, believe it. You can believe everything. But what are we told? Keep it yourself. Keep it private. And what it does is it compartmentalizes our life if we buy into that mentality. So the world's mentality is, yeah, church, gather together, sing, worship, do whatever you want Sunday morning. But when you come to work Monday morning, you leave that garbage at home. It's got no place in our workplace or any of that and leave it out. And so for many people, Christianity becomes Sunday morning for an hour and a half, maybe Wednesday night for an hour. Um, if, if you're doing some devotional times and you got an hour here, half hour there, if you're super spiritual, you might have three or four, definitely not most of us, but that's it. Once you go to work, everything's off the books. But the reality is this, Christians have been changed inside out and we see everything through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, everything. There's no compartmentalizing. Our faith doesn't just stop here this morning. Look, these gatherings are important. 
There is work that is done here. The church has been given to us as a tool of sanctification. When we gather together, God does stuff here. Like God changes lives here. God chisels away works of the flesh from our life. He, he sands off rough edges. He does work in this place. And the church exists to equip us and to change us that we might be a better representation of the gospel as we go outside of this place and that we might be more Christ-like. These are important. This is why the scriptures tell us, do not neglect the gathering of the saints. Listen, people, do not neglect the gathering. What we're doing here is important. And it should be a major priority in your life. It should. But it doesn't stop here. It's got to change and go outside of here. I mean, these gatherings are crucial. We got, what, riots going on in Baltimore right now? Race relations going on? It is a complicated issue. It is not as simple as most people, especially, I'm sorry, most white people that have been outside of those sort of culture wars. It's not as simple as it looks on TV. When you've lived in areas that have that sort of element, you understand there's complicated issues and there's a lot of history, whether it be true or not, that is at play. It's complicated. But during the civil rights movements, um, back in the, what was it, 60s, 60s, right? Civil rights, Mike, 60s? When this, <laughs> I, was, I wasn't alive yet, sorry. But when, when, during the civil rights movements, study the Sunday gatherings and their place in the civil rights movements. And here's what you find. You had people that felt the exact same way as what you're seeing going on in Baltimore. You had people that were tired of it. They were done having their foot on their throat, they felt all the time. The systematic injustices and all those things. They were sick and tired and ready to riot and they would go to church and it changed them. And they would walk out of their church gatherings. Look up men like John Perkins. You don't even have to, I mean, everybody goes MLK. Look up John Perkins and see the stories of what was happening in these churches. People came out of there angry and ready to revolt going in, just like Baltimore, walking out with faith in God saying, nope, we have been reminded of his goodness and we will let Jesus Christ do the change in us and through us. And it's the reason that the movement worked. It's what's missing now in places like Baltimore and Ferguson and others is the church to play that role. These gatherings are super, super important. But walking in community with one another outside these walls is actually where the Holy Spirit tends to do most of its most significant work in all of us. That's the reality of it. Church doesn't stop when I say amen and you guys walk out the door. Because in here, God might convict you and speak to you personally, Jeff. You're struggling with this pride issue. You need to deal with this. And then church ends and we go and walk in honest community with other believers and you know what happens? The spirit points out to others what he told you he's working on with you and that's annoying. Right? And then if you have an honest, godly brother who's got the guts to come alongside you and say, Jeff, you know, man, I I just sense there's some pride issues in your life, man, and I just wanna talk with you. That's where stuff happens. But for most of us, we never experience that because we're so caught up in the external behavior that we hide the things that God's trying to do in our lives. And we fear that if people see our weaknesses, then they're gonna judge us because we're in that legalistic mindset too of comparing ourselves one to another. And God has given us community with one another to walk in humble submission under a gospel that guarantees we're not perfect and allows us to learn to walk and commune and be with one another in life, even outside the doors of this church. I'm telling you, that's where work gets done. 
And you talk to people that are active in things like huddle groups here and and tight accountability groups, brothers that can pray with one another and talk about real things that are going on. And I mean like the real stuff that you would be horrified if other people knew because all of us, man, if we could put any of our last 48 hours of life up on the screen and watch it, whoever that is would guaranteed leave this place humiliated. All of us have fallen short of the gospel of God. But man, the Holy Spirit works through the church, through the spirit inside us, and through the community that we have together to sand off those rough edges and mold us more and more to where people see us and they go, man, that guy looks like Jesus. That guy's like Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. And that's the goal here. This is what the spirit wants to do for us. And so listen again to the offer. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't fall back into imprisonment and that pressure of pretending and hiding and faking. And don't fall back into imprisonment, submitting yourself back again to sins that Christ died to set you free from. But walk in liberty and in humility with one another in allowing the Holy Spirit to work on you and not letting pride rule you in such a way that you're not even allowing the Spirit to do anything. And next week, we're gonna go into this much more detail as it starts in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves. Bear one another's burden. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives. Oh, there's gonna be some heart work that God wants to do in our lives but we'll get to that next week, amen? Hey, Sam's sick, so we don't have a closing song, but will you just stand and pray with me? And Paul puts the offer before us. Choose to follow Jesus. Everything else speaking to you is a mirage. Only Jesus leads us to freedom, amen? Say it with me, only Jesus only Jesus. God, will you by your spirit lead your people? God, will you continue, Lord, this difficult and sometimes painful work of setting us free from religion, setting us free from sin, setting us free to follow you, to love others? I pray, Lord, for our church. I thank you for this time of going through these things and looking at many very difficult things, Lord, in this book. But God, I know that you're doing a gospel work in this church even through it. And Lord, When you prune, it's so that more fruit might be yielded. And so I pray, God, for the pruning that's going on in many of our lives. I pray, God, that we would trust you and trust the process, that we would submit to your word and your rule, and that, Lord, you would just do that work, painful that it might be, that we might produce fruit in the end. I pray, Lord, that heritage would look more like Jesus this year than it did last year and more like Jesus next year than it does this year. And I pray for us as individuals too, Lord, as we walk outside the doors of this building, I pray, Lord, that we would be truly led by your spirit, that you would lead us, Lord, to loving and serving others, believer and unbeliever alike, and that you would continue changing us into the image of your son. But Lord, that battle is exhausting. And Lord, many of us are weary from those struggles. And so, Lord, we pray in conjunction with your scripture, the book of Revelation itself, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
Will you take away this sin, take away the effects of the fall, take away cancer and death and breathing issues in babies and all of these sorts of things, Lord, sins of drunkenness and riotous and envy and backbiting, all of these things, God, will you come? Because, Lord, when you return, we know that our enemy will be forever vanquished and removed. And, Lord, we pray in humble expectation of the day that we get to set our eyes on you. But until then, Lord, may your spirit just lead us and may we hear what you have to say. May even the very words that we talked about this morning, Lord, may they percolate in our minds and souls. May your spirit show us areas of application and conviction, and and may we be comforted knowing that you are sovereign, that you are Lord, and that you lead us to freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. amen. Gang, if you need prayer.